Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes the facts we think we know aren't quite as solid as we originally assumed. And that's the underlying thread of the story I'm about to tell you. Now, we could start almost anywhere with this story. 1700s, the 1800s. But let's start just about 25 years ago, the early 1990s, when a book and its author burst onto America's cultural scene with tales of men and women not getting along. I get to see as a marriage counselor for over 30 years, people often on their last exit. Because I'm famous, people say, oh, you got to go see him. So I get the tough cases. That's John Gray speaking about 20 years after he published his most celebrated book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I do these seminars, workshops at my ranch for like four days. And we start out men in one room, women in the other. Without my influence, I have the men write down their complaints about their wives, relationships, women in one room. Women do it in another room. And then we spend the whole four days working on that. Gray's book sold a jaw-dropping 15 million copies and landed him on a variety of shows. But it was Oprah in particular that cemented his stardom and gave him a platform to tell tales of intrinsic differences between how men view the world and how women view it. And men have one sheet and women have five. <laughs> and men's list is one or two words, critical, Complaints, nags, punishes, not interested in sex. That's about the longest one they come up with. <laughs> There's that list over there. And women got this, all these lists. They get a big, long list. Everything's a long sentence, and if this, then that, and all that stuff. <laughs> and men go, see? Audiences connected to Gray because often they felt like he had put his finger on the exact problems they were having. Lots of the strains in your relationship, he argued, lots of the differences that pull husbands and wives apart, well, those differences are more universal than we understand. Around the same time, the rise of brain scanning technologies was helping to underline some of those differences. When brain imaging arrived at the sort of end of the 20th century, it was the first time people had really been able to understand how amazing the brain is, because before we'd only been able to look at either dead brains or, or brains that were, were damaged. That's Gina Rippon, a professor of cognitive neuroimaging at Aston University in the UK. It looked like, to coin a phrase, we've been able to make the invisible visible. And the way in which these images were constructed looked really transparent. So it looked, yes, I can see how somebody's brain is, is changing when I'm giving them a list of words or when I'm asking them to think about how they might vote, for example. And there was lots of terms such as the brain lighting up uh, when somebody sees a particular image. Rippon says that excitement was infectious. The only thing was it didn't result in enlightenment. It resulted, she argues, in something else. What I called a, a wave of neurotrash where people were peddling stories about male and female brains because it, it seemed to resonate with what people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that men's brains are different from female brains. So along comes somebody who says, ah, oh, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and here's the brain scans that prove it. Rippon is the author of Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds. She says that years of studies have been misinterpreted or extrapolated out way too far beyond what the science actually shows. 
and our belief that, for example, young boys and young girls are inherently different, it ignores the fact that kids start learning about those categories from the world around them on day one. And our brains are a lot more malleable than we've come to believe. Now we know the brain is plastic. Just dividing somebody into whether they're male or female ignores the fact that they've probably had different experiences, different types of education, they play different kinds of sports, they've got different kinds of occupations, all of which will also change the brain as well as the fact that they're male or female. And ignoring that means that you might come up with an answer that looks like a sex difference, but in fact, uh, you may be looking at the fact that you've had different training opportunities in your life, you've played with different toys and have different hobbies and have been in a different occupation. Still, ask lots of parents and teachers if there are differences between girls and boys, behavioral differences, differences in academic achievement, in styles of play, in hobbies, and they'll tell you there are. Teachers will note girls tend to acquire a larger vocabulary early on, which, Rippon says, is right. That, on average, is true. What does science tell us about why that's happening? Well, the jury's out. And sure, it could be nature. But there's also evidence that girls are encouraged linguistically more early on. So mothers interact and respond more to girl baby vocalizations than they do to boy baby vocalizations. And again, I think that's a nice example of how entangled nature and nurture is. That entanglement comes up a lot in parents' observations of what their kids are doing. Take, for example, Al Roker, a host of the Today Show, who in 2007 sat down with Dr. Leonard Sachs, author of the book, Why Gender Matters. Now, this is interesting because you know, I've got two kids, I've got three kids, but uh, two smaller children, who's a boy and a girl, and my son goes for trucks, my girl goes for, for dolls. What, is it, are we really hardwired that differently? Dr. Sachs, not surprisingly, told Roker, we sure are. There's a fascinating study very, just published showing that when you look at newborn babies, mm -hmm. first day of life, and you put a, uh, a woman stands on one side of the crib and on the other side of the crib you have a mobile swinging around, the girl babies all look at the woman, the boy babies all look at the dangling mobile because it's mm -hmm. moving. The boys are looking for the movement, the girls are more interested in a human face. That's on the first day of life. These differences are hardwired and we now understand exactly why that's so. It's an interesting choice of study because it's a study I criticize intensely in my book and which has been widely criticized elsewhere. It's a study done by Simon Baron-Cohen and his team. And effectively, there are some interesting data there, but there are some major methodological problems. And it's interesting that um, Len Sachs decided to say that all girl babies looked at the face and all boy babies looked at the mobile which is absolutely not what was shown by the data. And even when it was you know, analysed more carefully within the paper, they don't draw attention to the fact that quite a lot of the babies didn't pay attention to either the face or the mobile, and some <laughs> of the girls like the mobile as well. So I think that's a very interesting study in itself, A, in how it's been presented, and B, in how sort of stickable it appears to be. It was, it was carried out some time ago. There's been widespread calls for it to be replicated and it hasn't been replicated. But it's exactly that sort of information which it's almost as though people want to hear that story. They want to believe little boy babies are hardwired differently from little girl babies because 
then that makes the sort of choices they make for the rest of their lives quite quite useful or easier to make. But I think I would certainly take issue with how that study is presented. But I think the use of the term hardwired is also something that is a bit of a red flag when people start talking about hardwired. Because one of the things we now know about the brain that we didn't in the last 30 years, since the last 30 years, is that it's actually very flexible and plastic throughout our lives, not not just in, in young children when their brains are growing. So, you know, even if we sort of acknowledge that, of course, there's so many girls out there, there's so many boys out there, there's going to be a huge range within any population of some people do this, some people do this, some people are at the fringes, some people are more average, you know. Is it possible that the average boy is different from the average girl, even if at the outer, you know, when you look at the whole spectrum, there are girls that have very unusual traits for girls and there are boys that have unusual traits for boys, of course, but at the averages are different. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a really important point to emphasize, because when we're looking at large groups of boys and girls or men and women, there are big differences within each groups. And the differences within each groups are always much, much bigger than the differences between them. So we've spent a long time and invested a lot of research and effort into focusing on very tiny differences, which are differences on average. But we have to ask ourselves, why are we asking these questions? Because we're interested in individual making choices for individuals, our own children, or our own pupils, our own employees. So just having a an overall image of a, a very tiny, and it is very tiny, uh, difference on average between groups is actually not very informative. And when you sort of take a step back and you look at the data and see how overlapping these really variable data sets are, you think maybe maybe we should be not thinking about them in these two different terms. Maybe we should start looking at these data in a different way and getting more useful information from them. Let me get a sense of what your view is on what the differences are between boys and girls' brains or whether there aren't any. I mean, we know that at something like nine or 10 weeks of gestation, if you're having a boy, testosterone sort of starts flooding mm-hmm. his body. Um, yep. How do we know? Now, that's not the same as if you're going to have a girl. How do we know the differences that are brought about by these different hormones flooding different children's bodies. Okay. Well, I mean, certainly I'm not, uh, as I have been portrayed in the media, a sex difference denier. I would absolutely acknowledge that there are genetically determined differences in the physical characteristics associated, obviously, with reproduction. So uh, boys and girls have, have different gonads and different genitals, obviously. But the argument is then taken a step further and says, you know, whatever it is that organises our bodies, our physical characteristics, also organises our brain. And that's what I take issue with. I think the evidence that testosterone, for example, has a very profound organising effect on boys' brains, which is different from how girls' brains are organised because they're not exposed to testosterone before they're born. I think that's where the jury is still out Hmm. and where we we really need to look at the data more carefully and understand how powerful social influences are on the effects um, of hormones, for example, on, on human brains. The responses of hormones similarly reflect social demands in human society. Uh, so it's not a kind of 
biology in the driving seat, one-way traffic from testosterone to whatever you believe a man to be. There's all sorts of other pressures which drive that end point. Can you point to a study or like a line of inquiry that really drove home for you? Maybe these differences are not what we've thought that scientifically they were. Are there studies that have really muddied the waters on this? Yes, I think certainly in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot, um, particularly understanding how, as I mentioned earlier, how plastic our brains are. So famous studies looking at London taxi drivers, for example, showing how their brains change when they carry out this amazing training that they do to become a black cab driver. It takes about three or four years, involves them learning 20,000 routes within six miles of Charing Cross. And uh, you can track how their brains change as they're acquiring this knowledge while they're being taxi drivers. And interestingly, how those changes disappear once they've retired. So it's a really good study of how the experiences that we have will change our brains. And up to that point, we used to think that effectively you had the brain you were born with. And that was where this idea of sort of hardwired differences between males and females came in. Right. So those kind of studies, which are not just taxi drivers or learning languages or learning sports skills or learning to juggle or playing video games, for example, we, we can see how those change the brain. So I think that's important. But we also know that the brain solves problems differently if they're presented in a different context. So if you're told that this is a task which, as a girl, you'll find difficult while somebody's scanning your brain while you're solving the problem, your brain will show different patterns of activity than if you're told the same task is actually one that you're likely to be good at. So I think the issue there is it, it really shows us how much what's going on outside the head is as important as what's going on inside the head. I feel like what you're saying, too, is it's not just brains that dictate who we are. It's we who dictate what our brains are, like what we do, what hobbies we have. It, it's reshaping our brains all the time. That's absolutely right. I mean, and, and that's when you start to get these sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. So people say, well, you know, men and women must be different because look at the different achievements they have. You know, look how many fewer women are in science, for example. And then you start to look at what's going on in the outside world, which might be driving people towards one kind of goal or away from another kind of situation and say that we, we really can't say, you know, the old argument, this is nature versus nurture. You can say, well, actually, now we know how reflective and responsive the brain is to what's going on in the outside world. You can't disentangle nature from nurture, that they each influence each other. And once you understand that, then you can start to unpick what it is that causes differences. But my main theme is that, that maybe just focusing too much on the sex of the brain's owner has caused us to miss out on a lot of really interesting data. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Gina Rippon, the author of Gender and Our Brains. She's also a neuroscientist at the Aston Brain Center in Birmingham, England. Um, you, you know, we talked about this idea of that it isn't just that our brains are creating who we are. We all the time from like day one are creating our brains. Um, and you talk about this uh, notion that kids are so fast to learn gender roles and to think about categories. Um, can you talk about that, examples of how you see that sort of manifested in daily life? 
Yes, I mean, I think, uh, again, people say that children appear to uh, sort themselves into different genders very early on and therefore it must be, you know, something that's inborn. But we do know that babies from the day of birth are actually responding differently to social cues. So there's a, a nice study that I talk about in the book. It's quite a small study, but where children were in one room sorting a whole range of toys into toys for boys and toys for girls and actually a huge amount of agreement. And next door, their parents, mothers and fathers were filling in questionnaires saying, yes, I wouldn't mind if my son wanted to uh, wear a tutu or have ballet lessons, etc. And then they asked the children, having sorted these toys, asked the boys, for example, so do you think your father would mind if you played with a doll? And I think less than 9% of the boys agreed that, you know, the father, you know, they they thought their father really would rather they didn't play with the doll. Whereas next door, the father was, you know, filling in his questionnaire, indicating how gender relaxed he was. So I think it's quite a nice study that children pick up, <laughs> pick up different messages. You might think you're being very gender neutral, but children are, are pretty keen on, you know, they, they pick up hidden messages very quickly. So, so uh, let me just get the numbers straight. So it sounds like something like 90% of boys were like, no, my parents would want yeah. me to not play with a doll, even if the parents. That, in the that's next right. Room my father would like, no, really rather I didn't play with yeah, a doll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give me a sense of where sort of the community of uh, people who study the brain are on this question of? differences between male and female brains, if there are any, would they say, oh, gee, I mean, we don't even have the tools yet, really. Like, we hardly know. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that, that's a good question, because within the scientific community, there is certainly a strong feeling that sex differences shouldn't be dismissed. And actually, I'm one of those people. I don't think we should dismiss sex differences. There are differences in, in brain-based physical diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, which we need to understand. There are differences in brain-based diseases like mental health issues like depression and eating disorders, for example. So clearly we need to understand that. And sometimes scientists within the community feel that when, for example, people like me criticise the research and say, actually, we should be careful about making statements about fundamental sex differences when they really aren't that fundamental. I think they mishear what's being said and, and it's certainly characterized in the scientific press as well as in the popular press as you know the sex difference wars you know setting scientists uh, one group against the other and one saying that people like me uh, are putting women's health at risk because we don't want people to do research into sex differences which is absolutely not what we're saying but some people feel you know if their life's work has been in identifying sex differences in particular parts of the brain if they feel it's being challenged, then it can make them defensive, understandably. Uh, if if uh, somebody's a parent or maybe will be a parent someday and they're hearing you say there's not as many intrinsic differences as you think, so much of what kids respond to uh, are inputs. They're not just, you know, uh, organically saying, gee, I really love guns or dolls. Do you have any advice for how to parent maybe in a way that doesn't necessarily encourage those gender differences, like that allows people to kind of figure things out for themselves? 
<laughs> yeah, it's a hard question. I have to be on your guard, I think I would say. Um, I mean, I think I do get asked that a lot and, 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 and that's great because it means people are, are on the lookout. I think the key thing to remember is, is not that we're trying to stop anybody doing anything like not stopping boys playing with dolls, for example. And it's making children realise that they have a choice to do what they would like to do and to make sure that the that other choices are available to them, you know, so don't swamp the, the the little girl in pink princess dresses and Barbie dolls and the little boy in superhero outfits and footballs. Just make sure that the whole range of opportunities that the world can offer is available. And I think that the thing to remember is a lot of people, you know, will say, well, let boys be boys. And you could say, well, if, if, if the world was full of very contented boy type boys and girl type girls, you could say, OK, if it ain't broke, don't fix it but I think there's a lot of evidence in a much higher incidence of eating disorders and self-harm in girls and suicide rate in boys which suggests that there is something not right about the paths that some children are are being put on Hmm. and that we really need to be aware that you shouldn't in any way inhibit people's choices and certainly, you know, let sex not be the first thing you see or the last question you ask is the kind of <laughs> what other things are they good at? Gina Rippon is the author of Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Mind. She's a neuroscientist at the Aston Brain Center in Birmingham, England. Gina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. We've corralled a bunch of studies that examine differences between male and female brains, as well as various scientists' take on this topic. If you want to check them out, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which will give you a preview every week of the show, along with articles and topics that have just captured our attention. 